While you're being seated, go ahead and turn back in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, 11 through 17. That is our sermon passage for this morning. We continue our series in 1 Peter, and we've come this far remembering and recognizing that St. Peter wrote this letter as a source of godly encouragement to a group of churches and Christians in Asia Minor who were undergoing an escalation in societal and cultural pressure. They were being pressed to give up their faith in Jesus. And so Peter writes this letter to give them encouragement. He begins to encourage his audience by telling them who they are, telling them what their identity is. And, and I can think of, of very few things as encouraging as being told, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession. I can think of very few things that are as encouraging as, as hearing the, the words of the apostles say, you are elect exiles who, according to God's great mercy, has been, have been born again to a living hope. I can think of very few things as encouraging as hearing from the lips of God, so to speak, through Peter himself, that believers in Jesus are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house. This should cause encouragement. This should cause us to be encouraged. The flip side of that, however, is, is that Peter, uh, after telling uh, these early believers and after telling us uh, their identity in Jesus, the flip side is he then tells them how to live that out. Sometimes that is encouraging, sometimes that is frightening, sometimes that just kind of ticks us off because typically when Jesus, or in this case, St. Peter, tells us how to live out our faith, it grinds up against what we naturally want to do. Well, we come now to what some commentators refer to as the heart of Peter's letter. We've, we've seen the identity explained, and now we get, really get into the sort of the nitty-gritty of what it means to live out that identity. What does it look like to live as a member of God's holy nation? And here in this passage, things begin to get real. Because up until this point, some of the things that Peter has talked about have been relatively abstract. When, when, when Peter says, be holy because God is holy, that's kind of an abstract thing. We know, well, being holy is being set apart. We're made different. We're expected to live different. But what does that look like in real life? Well, anytime we do something weird, it doesn't necessarily mean we're being holy. But here in this letter, at this point in this letter, at verse 11 of chapter 2, Peter starts to get very specific. Those who are the members of God's holy nation through Jesus Christ, those who are people of his own possession through Jesus Christ, are sojourners and exiles, and they are expected to abstain from sin. A sojourner or an exile is, is one who is just temporarily living in the place where they are. And when it comes to God's people... The, the reality is, you may have been born in America, you may continue to live in America, but if you are a Christian, you are a sojourner and an exile in America. Because your, your first notice, your first membership, your first point of belonging is no longer America, it is God's holy nation. It is an elect exile. So sojourners and exiles 
are different than the world around them. They're temporary residents and have a very different set of beliefs, priorities, values, and morals. They are members of God's holy nation before they are members of any geopolitical nation. And so their allegiance is primarily to God's holy nation. As members of God's holy nation, as a people of his own possession then, Peter says, abstain from the passions of the flesh. He's already said back in chapter 1, verse 17, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Quite often and, and quite frequently, when we talk about the passions of the flesh, they are, the scriptural authors are talking about some sort of sexual activity. We cannot whitewash history to remove the moral corruption from Rome. Rome was absolutely debased. There's a reason why in the book of Revelation, the code word, uh, well here, uh, writing from Rome, he, he talks about himself being in Babylon. Because Rome and Babylon were idolatrous cities. Rome and Babylon were places of absolute moral corruption. And he's writing, Peter is writing here to people in the Roman Empire, a Roman Empire that was known for its moral corruption as prostitution was a recognized institution. Ritual prostitution was often a part of cults and religions. Men and women in Rome were bought and sold into slavery with regular frequency. Power was bought and sold at a price. And, and here, Peter says, whatever you were before you came to know Jesus, abstain from that. No longer be conformed to that. That is in the past. That is done away with. You are now part of God's holy nation, God's particular people, God's possession. Be done with the ways of the flesh. And he does this, I think. God says this through Peter. You have to recognize this for our good. So often we think that Jesus or that God doesn't want us to, to do things that we think are fun just because he's an old fuddy-duddy. But it's not true. You notice what Peter says here in verse 11. These passions of the flesh wage war against your soul. The passions of the flesh, the sins that Peter calls us to abstain from, are literally killing us. Literally killing us. And so it is for our good, for our physical good, for our emotional good, for our spiritual good, to obey God and abstain from the passions of the flesh. And so Peter says, live differently. He says to these group of believers, live differently. As children of the Father, live as a member of a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people of God's own possession. Live honorably among the Gentiles, his, his word here for non-believers. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, not if, but when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Rather than live as the world lives, sojourners and exiles are to live lives of honor in public. 
Jesus says you don't light a lamp and then hide it under a, a, a basket. Jesus says you can't hide a city on a hill. And so a life lived uh, as a member of God's holy nation, a life lived uh, as honorable, abstaining from sin, is a life that is to be lived in public as a public witness about God. Uh, part of proclaiming the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light is living as a sojourner and an exile, abstaining from the passions of the flesh and living with honorable conduct among the Gentiles so that when they speak against you, they will ultimately know that they are wrong. Live with such honor that even when they curse you as an evildoer, Peter writes, they will be convicted by your good deeds and come to know God through Jesus Christ. The kind of public lifestyle that Peter's talking about cannot be boiled down to slapping a bumper sticker on your car. It ain't about wearing the right t-shirt. It is about living properly. About living as God wants his people to live in public. But how do we do that, St. Peter? Well, I'm so glad that we asked because you take this idea of having a holy life, living honorably amongst the Gentiles, and you begin to look at what follows next in his letter, and he reveals exactly what he means about living honorably. Living honorably among the public, among non-believers, in this particular context of 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, verses 13 through 17, means first, being subject to the, for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Living honorably means submitting to the emperor. Having called sojourners and exiles to live with honor among non-believers, Peter then turns to give very real examples of what this honorable life looks like. First, he says, submit for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Part of the public witness, part of the public witness to God given by God's people is living as a good citizen within the geopolitical nation in which we temporarily reside. And notice something here. I can't find the word. I tried as best that I could. I cannot find the word good. The Apostle Peter, in writing Scripture breathed out by God, does not say be subject to the good ones. There's a lot of crickets in here this morning. This rubs up against us challenges us because, quite frankly, we can come up with far more examples of wicked or incompetent moral national leaders than we can morally good and competent ones. Well, I got an amen. And remember, Peter is writing when uh, Rome dominated the world. And after Augustus Caesar, who himself was no saint, you came a sharp decline in Roman emperors. Tiberius was okay, but 
He was kind of bloodthirsty. Caligula was absolutely off his rocker, crazy. He made his horse a senator and proclaimed himself a god. Uh, Claudius, he was a competent guy, but still immorality perpetrated and filled throughout the, the emperor. And then you have Nero. So at the latest, Peter here is writing under the emperor Nero, who, when the Rome burnt, blamed it on Christians, dipped some in, in oil, and used them to light a, a garden party in his own house. And Peter is writing in a time in which, you know, the, you can't find a good moral or competent leader in that sense, because they're all evil, and Peter says, uh, for God's sake, for the Lord's sake, be subject even to these knuckleheads. That's not easy, is it? No. Now, according to St. Paul, writing in Romans chapter 13, God establishes and institutes governments for the good of his creation. God ordains human institutions or human governments specifically to dispense justice. As Eastern Orthodox Saint Justin Popovich has said, through sin, man becomes mad, insane, and God in his grace and his benevolence creates government divinely entrusted to protect people with just laws and thus limit the insanity of sin. As Archbishop of Canterbury Thomas Cranmer once wrote, God in his grace ordained kings, princes, and governors to whom he gave authority. Ordained by God for the good of his creation, governments are to be obeyed by God's people. And this seems to have been the way it was always supposed to be. Remember back in uh, the prophet Jeremiah, used by God to, to write a letter to the people of Israel in exile in Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar, another example of a less than fine, upstanding ruler of nations. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, the one who laid waste to the city of Jerusalem, destroyed the walls, destroyed the temple, carted off all the, the precious stuff from inside the temple and a whole bunch of people to Babylon. God writes to those people living under King Nebuchadnezzar and says, Says, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Implicit in this letter is the expected submission and honor given to the king and to the government. We heard this morning from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, and there Jesus recognized the legitimacy of the emperor of Rome. He recognized the legitimacy of the geopolitical kingdom, and he recognized the legitimacy of taxation and paying taxes. In his letters to the Romans and to Timothy, St. Paul calls upon believers to pay their taxes and pray for national leaders and governments. And so members of God's holy nation as sojourners and exiles in this world are to be subject to every human institution in obedience to God as a public profession of living honorably so that when they tell lies about us, they will be confronted with the lies that they tell. How do we uh, remain subject to every human institution? Well, paying taxes praying for those who hold office, fulfilling our civic responsibilities, and positively seeking to do good. Being good citizens, following 
the laws of the land being subject to the human government, whether wicked and incompetent or moral and competent, is expected of God's holy nation living in exile. It's expected. This is going over really well this morning. <laughs> but Peter doesn't end there. Peter doesn't end there. Verse 16, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. People in in God's family are freed by God's grace now to not sin. Our freedom in Jesus doesn't allow us to sin, but rather we are now freed to not sin. And, And so rather than living as servants of sin or as slaves to sin, Uh, followers of Jesus are now to live as servants of God by honoring everyone, giving all people respect. Is it difficult sometimes in uh, Highway 98 during the height of tourist season to give all people respect? (laughs) Difficult sometimes in the midst of a uh, a presidential election cycle to give all people respect, but Peter says here, give all people respect. He doesn't qualify it by saying as long as they belong to the right party affiliation. Give all people respect, but there's a higher obligation to love fellow believers. He says here, honor the emperor, but there's a higher obligation to fear God. There's an obligation to honor the emperor, but there's a higher obligation to fear God. And I think there's some delicious irony here that as the emperor is is sort of relegated uh, in, chapter, in verse 17, honor everyone and honor the emperor. He doesn't get special, special standing. Only God is said to be feared. There's some delicious irony here that the emperor is honored just like everyone else, so we ought not to think too highly of government officials because chances are really good they put their pants on one leg at a time as well. God alone is to be feared. Believers in Jesus are to submit to temporal rulers and authorities, even wicked ones that pass wicked or foolish laws, may have terrible economic policies and lead poorly because it is obedience to God and a public witness to God, but only God is to be feared. And in fearing God above even the emperor, There is the simple recognition that even kings have a king. He is the king of kings. And as such, there is only so much to which any earthly king is entitled. If you go back to the words of Jesus from this morning's gospel, as he looked at that coin, that denarius, he said, whose likeness and inscription is this? In that particular day and age, it probably would have been the Emperor Tiberius. And on the Emperor Tiberius's coinage, there was on one side a, a rendition of his head or his face, and then it said something to the effect of him being divine. Well, the coin, they said, was Caesar's because it carried Caesar's likeness and inscription. Jesus said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. What bears the image of Caesar? The coin. We'll give it back to him. But what bears the image of God? Humans do. So give yourself back to God. 
Jesus isn't just avoiding a trap. He's positively stating things of ultimate importance. Having been made in the image of God, the human belongs to God. There's only so much the king is entitled to. Yes, pay your taxes to Caesar, but give yourself, your whole self, to God. He is the one you fear above all else. He is the one you obey above all else. God is the one you follow above all else. In obeying and honoring the government, there may very well be times in which our obedience to an earthly king would mean disobedience to our heavenly father. That can never be. Let me say that again because I don't think you heard me clearly. In and obeying the, and honoring the government, there very well may be times in which our obedience to an earthly king would mean disobedience to our heavenly father. That can never be. God's people are to fear God, not any emperor, governor, prime minister, president, or king. And so sojourners and exiles can never forget. The church should never have any confusion about whom it serves and to whom they belong. Obeying God looks like obeying the government, but when obeying the government looks like disobeying God, then believers are called to fear God and not the emperor. Civil disobedience looks something like that of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3. Government officials in King Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon, they refused to commit idolatry even when ordered by the king. Standing when everyone else bowed, they obeyed God, not man, and were willing to face the punishment for their civil disobedience even if God didn't rescue them. Look at Daniel chapter 3, and you'll see the inspiring words of, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego right around verse 17 or 18. They say, listen, we're not going to commit idolatry, King Nebuchadnezzar. All due respect, we will not bow down to your idol. God, do whatever you want to do to us. God will either rescue us or he won't, but we still won't bow down. Willing to pay the price because it's an issue of idolatry. Scriptural, scripture contains... Well, let me back up just for a second. There's often times when, when we start to talk about uh, the escape clause, uh, right? We're supposed to honor the emperor, obey the government, except when. We always kind of celebrate the fact that there's an except when. I think we ought to go humbly and softly when it comes to this escape clause. Because quite frankly, our relief at the escape clause can very well be a sign of just how unruly and how ungovernable and how unmanageable our hearts and affections truly are. And so if there is going to be a time, and there probably will be, if there is going to be a time when the church gets to practice, has to practice civil disobedience, when it seems like an option, we better darn well be sure that it's biblical in nature and that it revolves around a scriptural principle. We can't, we can't uh, practice civil disobedience if, if all of a sudden we find that red Ford, to uh, red Ford pickups are, are outlawed. That's not really a, a biblical thing, right? Scripture contains a few examples of civil disobedience. First is Exodus chapter 1. Pharaoh commanded the Israelite midwives to feed the crocodiles of the Nile by casting the male newborns into the river. But the midwives of Israel uh, feared God 
And so they disobeyed Pharaoh. In order to protect life, an evil law of an evil king may be disobeyed. Go back to the book of Daniel again, not only in Daniel chapter 3, but also in Daniel chapter 6. We see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as, long, as well as Daniel, all faced with the choice. Obey the king and commit idolatry, or fear God, disobey the king, and face the civil punishment. In order to, in order to protect true worship and to avoid the sin of idolatry, an evil law of an evil king may be disobeyed. In Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5, Peter and the apostles were summoned before the ruling council, the people of Judea, the same ruling council that persuaded Pilate to crucify Jesus, and they were ordered to stop their preaching and to stop their healing in the name of Jesus. And in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, I believe, Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. In order to keep the sanctity of the gospel and to continue its proclamation, an evil law of an evil king may be disobeyed. There's a reason why the fastest growing national church in the world today is found not in America, not in South Africa, but in Iran. There's a reason why probably in the next 20 years the fastest growing church in, a, in the world will be in Russia. Because for the past 40 years, Iran has suppressed the proclamation of the gospel, but men and women who believe in Jesus have been willing to suffer the civil possibilities of punishment in order to obey God by fearing God and proclaiming the gospel. This past summer in Russia, Vladimir Putin issued what is essentially an executive order which banishes evangelism through email or conversation. You know what that's going to do to the proclamation of the gospel, right? The exact opposite that what Putin wants it to do because there will be men and women who fear God more than they fear him and they will continue to proclaim the gospel regardless of what civil punishment may come. There are times in which there are times in which disobedience to the emperor is required of us because of our fear of God. Life, idolatry, gospel these are a few from Scripture that are exceptions which prove the rule. Sojourners and aliens live as good citizens subject to the government. We are good people to even in the government's eyes publicly so that people may see, people may respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Peter calls upon God's holy nation to fear God. Peter calls upon God's holy nation to live in obedience to Him, living lives of honor in the nations of their temporary residence. And this means abstaining from the sins of the world, and it means submitting to the government in obedience to God and as a public witness to Him. Sojourners and exiles live differently than the world by abstaining from sin and honoring the emperor. And I've said this to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs>